Hi, and welcome to Over 50 and Effin' Funny with comedians Jan McGinnis and Frank King. My mom used to tell me to stand up straight. You ever get that from your mom? Yes. That's such a mom thing to say. I think mothers have been telling their kids to stand up straight for longer than we realize. Perhaps even to pre-human days. What if that were the driving force? the evolutionary trend to walk erect. Right? Mothers nagging their children up the evolutionary ladder. Stand up straight. Don't drag your knuckles when you walk. Uh, Is this the show? Have we started? Is this it? I I started recording, so... uh... (laughs) Welcome to uh, Over 50 and Effin' Funny, Brian Mallow. Hey! Hey. I'm Effin' Over 50. Yeah, I thought... Thought you might be, since we worked together back in the day at comedy clubs. Back in a previous century. I was going to say, Brian, I've never met you, but how did you and Frank meet? This is our, you and my first meeting. So, um, so, (laughs) excuse me, I just inhaled some water. You know, uh, I don't remember the club, but Frank and I worked together at least twice, just like random as road comics crossing paths. Do you even remember where? Uh, Texas pops into my head, but I don't know why. I was from Texas. I started my comedy career in Austin, Texas. Yeah. At, the, at what was the Laugh Stop, uh, which eventually mm-hmm. became Cap City, Capital City Comedy Club. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wasn't it the Laugh Spot in the meantime when Don Learned was running it? No, no. So Different. the Laugh Stop in Austin, uh, there was also a Laugh Stop in Houston. There were That's two Houston. Laugh Stops. I've and then Houston. Don had it, the Laugh Spot was in a northern suburb of, of yeah. Houston. So there were two, there was a laugh stop. This is a little confusing, especially for <laughs> dyslexics, but um, a laugh stop. The in, laugh stop. Yeah, <laughs> a, a laugh stop in all, exactly. And the laugh stop. And why do you wouldn't even want the laughter to stop? Why would you? Well, or, the laughter stops here. Or maybe it's like a depot. Yeah, this is the laugh stop. You stop here for laughter. Right. Well, and it was a laugh stop. Um and then he he didn't want to change the sign entirely, so he just wrote so a letter to the spot, which I thought was brilliant. But there, like laugh stop. Maybe its name comes from the days of the telegram. Laugh stop. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Hicks stop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've had smoking like stop. stop smoking. <laughs> there was once a uh, comedy club at the Ramada Hotel, and the R fell off, and the they didn't want to. Spend the money so it's turned into the Armada Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, so, so I know that I don't know if it was in Texas because I was from Texas, but I feel like we worked at a slapsticks kind of a comedy club somewhere. We worked. I think we did a week somewhere, and then a couple years later we met up again somewhere. And there was a time that I remember you were pretty much living into your in your car. You had was it a station wagon? No, a forerunner, actually. Something that had like a back end. You had a bunch of stuff back there, like a little like camping oven and stuff. and Microwave, fax machine. Yeah, <laughs> my lovely wife and I. Uh, matter of fact, there was so much electronics, Jam, that uh, one night in a hotel, I'm, at the sh- I'm in the showroom and I get a message from the front desk. Your wife wants to talk to you. So I went to the front desk, picked up the phone. And, my- and Wendy says to me, um, is the power out in the entire hotel? She'd, she'd blown the power in a wing of the hotel because we had too many appliances going. Nice. <laughs> yeah. You were a high-tech mobile comedy unit. 
I was. You did all of that in one little phone. All yeah. of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah, so I, so, we met on the road somewhere. I'm not sure, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of uh, Brian's science comedy. Uh, different, obviously. Um, and, you know, back then I, wa- I didn't have that phrase science comedian, but I was science geeky from because I liked science before I ever got into comedy. Yeah. So it was pretty natural that I was kind of geeky, but I didn't know, you know, I played with it, too. Like I would in promo materials, I might reference that I had more science jokes than the average comic i had like lines like that i kind of flirted with the idea but it was years later that this phrase science comedian came into my head and i looked up and by then we had the internet because we're pre-internet comedians oh yeah um and i remember checking just about 12 or 15 years ago not that long ago and sciencecomedian.com was available which seemed like that's either a really good sign or a really bad (laughs) sign maybe it's useless real estate but it really was good for me because It's not like I calculatedly set out to become the science comedian. It was like, oh, wait a minute. That's what I'm doing if I cut this other stuff away. Mm -hmm. And and really, I have the broadest definition. My jokes aren't all about science, but maybe I... That would turn everybody off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, that isn't even true. But, but, um... There's just something geeky or sciencey or rational about the viewpoint. Like, I can, I can call a lot of things a science joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. I can justify a lot. I can rationalize a lot. Throw in a percentage, you're there. So are you still doing clubs, corporate? What are you doing? What are you doing, Brian? Yeah, so I segued into more corporate stuff, college and corporate stuff. Also, sure. when I became, and, and some other stuff. So uh, my work now is divided between stand-up, uh, s- science communication talks. So the, oh. let me take a step back. Once I called myself the science comedian, that led to like, an expectation that oh. I do more than just perform that I like educate. Like I remember someone was going to hire me and they go, Oh, so, so you teach kids about science using stand up comedy. And I was like, no, if you're a geek, I'll make you laugh. Those are very, <laughs> very different things. Not, and, but, but. You're crazy. Some, if you say, well, what's your budget? Yes, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying I won't take the gig. I'm just saying that's not exactly who I am, but uh, you're right. Um, I've done that. You know, I'll tell you a story exactly like that. The first time I was asked if I give science communication talks, um, I said, yes, I do. This is a thing that I do and have been doing for a long time. Yes, this is a normal, completely normal thing for me to do. And uh, I had discussed it with someone previously and I immediately went to him and was like, so did you ever start doing those talks? What kind of stuff did you talk about? You know, Um, but 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 there is something of the teacher in me. I like to turn people on to whether it's music or books or a science idea or something. So uh, once I was the science comedian, that did lead to science communication stuff. So I made science videos for Time Magazine and I did radio pieces for Neil Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson's radio show, Star Talk. And um, things like that. I blogged for eventually I blogged for Scientific American. Eventually I took a job. At a science museum, because by then I was like going to conferences and stuff, and I was giving science communication talks. Since I had done, in addition to performing, I had done audio and video, and I had had a talk show where I interviewed a lot of scientists. So I was doing a lot of science communication stuff. I moved to Raleigh from San Francisco to work at a science museum, for, and after four years, I returned to freelancing. But I, there was a venue, and I 
interviewed scientists on stage and I hosted oh, talks fun. by them and I helped them be better communicators. And it was, yeah, it was fun. I had a day job there for four. I had been a freelancer, but I had this day job, but it was really fun and it fit into what I was doing. Oh, yeah. Why did you quit? Sounds like a Well, there were a lot of reasons, but the main one, yeah, well, you know, it was a state job and it wasn't quite enough. I had to supplement it and they were careful about what you were allowed. When you're a state employee, when you make other income, uh-huh. they look at it very closely. And so it, but, but really there were just other things I wanted to do. And since- I couldn't hold a full-time job. It was a full-time job. And also I couldn't always go out of town for the gigs I would want to go to whenever I wanted oh, to. Yeah. I had to get permission. And it's like, none of us that got into comedy <laughs> want to ask permission to go, can I go on a gig? No. <laughs> that or, doesn't... or who's vacation? It's like, uh, no, I'm taking vacation next week. I'm, I'm taking a couple extra days. Yeah. And, yeah. And I'm sorry, but I'm not, I don't even have kids. I don't know that level of responsibility to others. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I don't want to ask. So it was great. I love it. It was a great experience. Like I would be tempted to go back and I'm actually going to do something with them in the next week. I'm nice. going to appear on a podcast with the new director of the museum. Um, so that's just, I so saw I have a great relationship with them and I, but I want to do these other things, more production, more video, more audio, more comedy. Cool. Cool. You did Ferguson. I did Craig Ferguson a long time ago. The show. I, as, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's no, I heard Bob Saget say that a million years ago. You were on Murph. The show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw the set. It was a good. One. And there was some quite a bit of science in the set, as I recall. So and that was way before I was the science comedian. And I left out the best joke. I it was not my first TV. It was my first national TV thing. It was on CBS. And it was very disorienting. And even though there was a, a, a girl holding up cue cards, I didn't look at them. I was, you know what I mean? I was, I was looking at the camera. It was really odd too, because the, the studio audience was over to the side, but the camera was there. So literally like you're like looking at the camera, but everyone that's there laughing at you is kind of over there. It was weird. So you kind of wanted to look at them, but, but yeah, you knew you had to look to the camera, but um, I left out the, Another another science joke, which was about my girlfriend being a little shorter than me. In fact, the first time I saw her, I thought she was farther away than she actually was. Total ah. science joke, but ah. a total science joke for anyone. Like, that's uh-huh. not yeah. too uh-huh. geeky. Everybody uh-huh. gets Anybody with a rearview mirror, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. So, so when did it get started? What year? Well, I was living in Austin, Texas. I had gone to college in Austin. I stayed out a year. Then I went to graduate school in TV production. And while I was in graduate school, I saw a sign for the funniest person in Austin contest. 1987, March of 1987. (gasps) This is March of some futuristic sounding year. Yeah. I didn't, who even thought we would be around? And in 2021, this pod, what is a podcast? And is it something happening on Mars? What is this? 2021. <laughs> this is bullshit, is what it is. Okay. Is so, 25, 25. Do you talk about with, with everyone since this show is people over 50, do you always talk about where the fuck did the time go? And, <laughs> and, do I really have to eat this much fiber? I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I have to go to the bathroom. I can't sleep. I got to get up to pee. Um, <laughs> friends dying of all sorts of things. Uh-huh. So many, so many missing comrades. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
1987, there was a those subjects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, hey, they're evergreen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <true>. Death. Death. <laughs> it's um comedy, tragedy, you know. Yes. Um, 1987, I had I I found out about the contest and I was able to do two open mics beforehand. I had never been on stage. I had been in a play in like fifth grade. Like I had no theater experience. So I wanted to do it though. I was ready to try it, but I had zero. And I would get shy speaking in front of a class when I I was not the class clown. I was funny with friends, maybe in a small group of geeks, Uh but, but in front of the class, I was, I did some funny things, but I was too shy and nervous. So I did two open mics. I was real nervous. But for the third time on stage, I prepared a nice little set. I remember my first real joke joke that I wrote, like yeah. solid joke that I wrote. And it was when the nicotine cigarette, I think nicotine, chew, nicotine like chewing gum, nicotine chewing gum was kind of new back then, right around then. Mm-hmm. And I had a joke about like I was and I came on stage in the contest. I'm chewing gum. It's this nicotine chewing gum. It's like, yeah, um, I don't smoke, but I wondered what it tasted like. Well, it tastes like shit. But by the end of the first week, I was up to four packs a day. And, and then there's a couple other punchlines. And then my doctor told me I'd have to, to, to quit. I'd have to start smoking. Uh-huh. A total actual joke, you know. Very good. Very and it nice. even had a couple other tags in the middle there. Yeah. But Did it was a great win? joke. And I used it for a long time. No, but you know what? And you you can, you know. When you when you're that kid trying it for the first time, you have no perspective on this. But years later, when you're part of the comedy scene and you go to and there's a contest and everyone on the scene knows who's probably going to place and win. You know, they look they look at all the comics and then who's this guy? We've never seen him and you discount him completely. Well, I made it to the finals that night. It was around a prelim. There were like there were like a week apart, like three or four weeks of prelims. And three or four people advanced and then the finals. And I made it to the final. And I was like, wow. who is this? But I, I also had to go on first. The, uh, the open mic nights were in the little lounge of the laugh stop that only sat about 50 people. Mm-hmm. But the contest was in the big room that sat about 400. So it was so and then we get there and I'm first. I'm like, what? I have to go on first. And the MCs who I would later become friends with because they were staples, Amos Ewing and JT Johnny Torres, who is long passed away now. Um, they were staples of the scene. I would later become friends with them, but they hosted and the energy in the room was so amazing. They didn't even warm the crowd up. They just bring me on basically. Wow. But the crowd was hot and I rocked this seven minutes and uh, I had put together a tight set and I improvised within it. And I got a tape of it. And a few weeks later in the finals, I had had the tape and I had practiced, including these things I had riffed. And in the contest, uh, in the finals, I tried to repeat the magic and I said the same words and it wasn't really funny at all. I learned that very harsh lesson my fourth time on stage. I said the same words and it just wasn't funny. I wasn't I wasn't on. So I learned that really cool, harsh lesson. I I rocked my third time. Like I'm awesome at this. And my fourth time I didn't. (laughs) Welcome to the uh, hills and valleys of comedy. (laughs) But I was hooked and I knew I wanted to keep doing it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. It was our friend, Jonna Williams, part of that original group of, you know, I would say Jonna must've started right around the same time as me. Like I know my friend, John O'Connell started right before me, I think. And Jonna, yeah, she, I consider her part of my original group of peers. 
and she must have started just before, just after me, pretty close. Yeah, Jan, she had difficulty, as I'm sure most women do at the time, probably still do in clubs, living in condos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah there was it was a quite freak. an experience. Yeah, there was a freak that we worked with down in Texas. No, Oklahoma, uh, Jokers. And he had been in the movie The Devil and Miss Jones, oh. the, the famous porn film. He's wearing a comedy oh. store T-shirt in the movie, if you ever, you know. Okay. And, yeah, not like you're going to go out and see it on Netflix. Anyway, uh <laughs> he would do he's a tiny little gym shorts. He would do these stretching exercises on the floor in the living room, you know, with his junk hanging out. And poor John has slept in her clothes all week. <laughs> oh man. And I told him I told the manager, uh, Ted, I said, Ted, you know, the guy's a freak. And so to Ted's credit, when uh, Tyler Horn came in to get paid, Tyler said to him, Well, can I come back? And Ted goes, No. And he goes, why not? Because you showed Wendy King your dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that that as club managers go, that's quite a moral act on that his is. Part. That yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, that is. You yeah. know, that reminds not even in the same realm of what women would have to put up with. But I do remember that just reminds me of a comedy condo experience where I was the low opening act. All three comics were in the condo. Yep. And I was the lowly new comic and MC who just did what I was told, didn't, you know, and the middle act and the headliner, the middle act was a very large guy and the headliner was a skinny guy and they had extreme disagreements about the thermostat. So I would be sitting in the living room and one of them would like the skinny one would come in and go, Christ, it's cold in here. And he would turn the thermostat down. And then 10, 15 minutes later, the other guy comes in. It's so fucking hot in here. And he would turn it up. And uh, I don't know if you like language, like uh, uh, curse words on your podcast, but say whatever but, you want. Oops. Um, my ear thing is coming out of my ear. So, yeah. And I just had to sit there and it's like, I was like the, the porridge was just, it wasn't even right. Neither one. I was the one in the middle and it was like, it's too hot for you. It's too, both of you have it wrong. <laughs> I'm going to a hotel. Yeah. yeah. It, living in the condos was certainly hard. I've had a few odd experiences. I did. Speaking of a booker, so uh, being a stand-up booker there, Frank, that, that is unusual. I mean, I had a booker one time booked me into a one-nighter and she, it was a woman booker who said the headliner I was featuring her is two, two show thing. And she said, uh, by the way, don't put your beer down around this guy. He'll slip you something if you know what I mean. And I <laughs> thought, you are booking this guy? And you are telling, and this has obviously happened to people. Right. I, we, I needed we should the money. Not have... <laughs> I needed the oh, money, man. so I did the gig. And, man, I'll tell you what, I, he was he was gross, disgusting guy. After he went on stage, I he came in late, so I was already on stage. So I got off stage with my own beer. And uh, he got on stage and uh, I watched about 10, 15 minutes and thought, yeah, he's gross. And so I went to bed and sure enough, you know, three in the morning, banging on my door, calling me in the phone, you know, let's hang out. And I was just like, God. It, oh, man. So, but, you know, to have a and bookers like I thought I could name 20, 30 guys that would do this gig and wouldn't do that. Where Why people wouldn't have to watch this? their beers. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Why are you booking this guy? There's other many hungry comics out there who would do this. You know, so anyway. Yeah, but uh, um, there are the occasional. That we, last week we talked, we were talking about um, it's better to have a booker that has actually been an entertainer because they understand the business. There's one in Texas, and I, Dave, and he books a lot of impersonators, and he's an Elvis impersonator himself. Hmm. 
and, and he gets it. And I'm at some yeah. gig and they're asking me to do all kinds of stuff that's not in the contract, additional stuff. And he, he just called him up and said, look, one or two things are going to happen. Either A, he's not going to do it or B, you're going to pay him more. I got to another gig and it was a bridal. Is that the Hillary Clinton thing we did? The Hillary Bill thing we did? Yes. Is that the Dave guy? <laughs> yeah. We, yep. we were doing a gig and you called him and said, look, they're making us do extra time. We're wearing these masks. I mean, these uh, prosthetics and they're hot. And yep. we're only supposed to go out every 15, at yeah. top On of your the face? hour and bottom of the hour for 10 minutes. And oh, he's making us go the whole hour. Yeah, we, called him and we thought for sure he was going to say that the client, we, so he said, tell the, he called the client and said, either give him more money or give him less time. And we thought for That's sure they're going to give us less time. And it gave us more money. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I also did a gig for him where the, it's like the mother of the bride, who's apparently, that's apparently, you know, that's always an issue with some kind of function that the, <laughs> the, the bride's parents are throwing. Um, so I get there and I said, I'm supposed to pick up the check. And she goes, oh, I left my checkbook at home. So I called Dave. I go, Dave, she left her checkbook at home. Hand her the phone. <laughs> Hand her the phone. <laughs> Here you go. Blood. I left my act at home. Oh, yeah. ah. The blood drained out of her face. She hands me back the phone. I go, Dave, what did you tell her? I said, well, here's how it's going to work. Um, do you have a credit card? She said, no. I said, well, you're going to have to shit one or he's not going on. And she shit a credit card. I but again, you don't expect the booker to back you up like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, no, I've, I've had to do that. When I've had to tell the client, the booker has told me not to go on. Yeah. If you don't pay me. But, you know. You know, um, here's a story I haven't thought of in a while. I'm pretty dependable. I think I've only missed. I, I think I can think of right now three shows that I've missed. And for extraordinary reasons. Well, I mean, one wasn't that extraordinary. <laughs> One, I, in San Antonio, I was sitting across the street in a Mexican restaurant waiting for the time to walk over and do my set. And I didn't realize that the battery in my old analog watch was kind of winding down. So when I looked at it, it was still ticking, but it had lost time. It had stopped at some point. And so while I should have been on stage right then, I was leisurely eating something across the street. Okay. That was that one. That one's not, but it wasn't my fault. But this here's the one I wanted to tell you. One time a guy, a booker in the Bay area, I was living in San Francisco, uh, asked me about a gig at a high school for high school graduation. Uh, like, so in like April or May or something. And he goes, are you free on, you know, whatever, May 10th? Yes. And uh, so we discussed the whole gig and, and it's, um, it's going to be a late night thing. Like, in fact, I won't even go on till after midnight. Right. Yep. Okay. So um, we talk about it, the whole thing. And then um, the day of the thing, I'm getting ready to go. And he calls me and he goes, how was it? How'd the gig go? And I go, well, what do you mean? Because it was May 10th, but it was after midnight. So it was like uh. that. It was like the morning of the 10th. And it's like, first of all, this is 100% his fault. Because if you call a comedian and say, are you available April 10th? Right. You're not asking. You're asking the evening of April 10th. He asked <laughs> me if I was available 10th. It emerges later that it's after. Like, it's like, I feel totally justified. But here's the kicker. He goes, so how did it go last night? I go, well. Um, what do you mean? Getting ready to go tonight. And he explains that. And he's like, well, the woman that had hired him, she said that she asked her son and that I had done really well. Ah! <laughs> so you got paid. 
Why did yeah. I ruin it? I had to say, he had, and also it was one of those rare occasions he had sent me a check in advance. I oh had to God. actually write sweet. him. A, I had to write him a check and oh, pay back. Sweet. But it's funny because I should have shut the hell up because apparently I did okay according to the Booker's son. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and then yeah, yeah. Um, and then is, one one other one that I missed oh, yeah, yeah. was where I end, but I did perform was. Also in the Bay Area, living in San Francisco, had a gig in the Sacramento punchline. It's 100 miles away. And it's challenging no matter what time you leave because of traffic. Mm -hmm. You have to go across the Bay Bridge and drive out there. And it's okay. I was traveling. I was the MC. Robert Hawkins, the very hilarious Robert Hawkins, was middling. And Dave Attell was the headliner. Robert and I lived in San Francisco, so we were driving together. But Attell is staying at a hotel there at Sacramento. So we're somewhat on our way. And this is pre-cell phone. So when we knew we weren't going to make it by showtime and I'm the MC and he's the middle act, uh, we had to pull over and find a phone. Uh, so you have to slow yourself down so we could say, and I remember I was there when Robert called and he goes like, I forget who the, the person's name was. Let's say Michael. He goes, Michael, he's like, 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 Michael, we are not going to be there. on." Like, I just remember how directly he said, like fact, we aren't going to be there at showtime. There's no way around that. It's not happening. And we're going to get there as soon as we can. Boom. So we get there. He drops me off and then parks. I run up and, and, and go up and Attell is on stage entertaining the crowd. But as soon as I come in the back of the room, he turns it over to me and I run on and I do a set. And then Robert comes in. So we actually oh, did nice. our sets, but nice. that was that a fun was show. Great. And working yeah. with David Attell, what a great lineup that was. Yeah, that was oh, fun. fun. Attell used to come to the, San the Bay Area a lot, so I used to see him back in the day a lot, and he was fun to watch. He's one of those guys that if you watch him through the week, you might see him sort of workshopping a joke where you go, oh, he told that a little different last night. Like, yeah. you could see him working the jokes. He started like the, it, the DC Improv where I started, but I started after him. But he uh, that's where he got his start, and uh, cool. everyone, oh, you know David Tell? No, I missed him by just a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. missed a lot of people. When I came to San Francisco, there had been such a scene there in the oh, earlier yeah. days. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was big enough that I, on on that seven years of Windy Hour on the Road, we rarely worked with a Bay Area comic because they never had to leave the Bay Area. Oh, that was a oh, thing. It's yeah. like that's it's one of those cities where they don't pay. They no. don't put up middle acts because there's so many locals. It's like, why would we pay for another? So they only have to put up headliners and it's hard to even break in as an, like to get an opening or middle gig at some of those like Boston, Chicago. But you Boston, know, when I started, I made a list of all the biggest, when I start left my day job and I've been doing comedy a couple of years, made a list of, this is my whole marketing plan, list of the biggest clubs in the biggest cities. And I like Chicago Zanies and all those, because I knew, um, there were going to be better people to work with. And so I could make more money doing one nighters for a hundred bucks a night instead of, you know, 400 for the week or whatever, but. Or nicer I, clubs. <laughs> yeah. Nicer clubs, better headliners that I would learn from. Better audiences. I, probably. I yep. start out every conversation. I can, you know, I've got a friend to stay with. I never, you know, half the time I did half the, I didn't. Yeah. And I worked bigger clubs. And I remember a guy that started out with me who got, um, did one nighters and he was making way more than I was could work in the East coast. One night I started in Virginia, uh, East coast one nighters, but I thought, no, this is how I want to play it. Cause I'm not going to learn. I'm not doing well in one nighters. I'm not going to learn anything. Yeah. And I'm going to get more exposure in the big club. So I really pushed for big clubs. I think that's great. In fact, another time in San Francisco at the punchline. So Mitch Hedberg was a good friend of mine. Um, and so when he came to San Francisco, he would stay with me and I have, 
I have some great video of us just goofing off, but also uh, two middle sets he did. And the headliner was Dave Attell, San Francisco uh, Punchline. Mitch was middling. He wasn't known. He had done a couple TV things. But at that time, some of the home video footage I have offstage is he was talking with um, um, Zoe Friedman, the booker of the David Letterman show. He was working on his first set. It was right before his first set. And they were discussing his set list for his first Letterman appearance, which would go really well. And he would ultimately do about 10 of them in a pretty short period of time. Um, Letterman seemed to really like, I mean, he had the kind of thing, like the tight little jokes that they love for one thing and clean. Sure. Yeah. He's perfect. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember that. And I have these two middle sets of his from back then. Um, one of them ends with David Tell taking the stage and going, turn off the damn camera. <laughs> and so I turned it off, but I was going to let it run if I could. That was the back. That was back in the day when that's all you had to worry about was one guy with a camera. Now it's now good luck. People with the cell phone. Yeah, good luck. Yep. Cool. Great stories, man. Out of San yeah. Francisco. So, so I know this is your show, but but where like what are you doing mostly now? Sitting for on my couch. No. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. COVID, pre pre huh? COVID and and COVID. You know. Yeah. It's a corporate but, stuff, uh, speaking keynotes. Um, on what sort of subjects? I know something about what Frank does. Uh, I do a change and um, uh, resiliency and stuff like that. I talk about using humor. I, I like to tell people how what to qualifies use humor you to what do you know about that kind of stuff? That's uh, the thing that I would ask myself about these kind of things. I, you know, I talk about humor in business too, uh, and using it because, you know, I, yeah. I started in business, I had marketing, uh. then I went into comedy, and then, you know, um, back into corporate com- corporate comedy and then cool. corporate keynotes and. That sort of stuff. So that's kind of what uh, what my trajectory is. I have, but I start. I have oh, suggested your book. Uh, Find the funny fast. Finding the funny yeah, fast. Yeah, finding the funny fast. Yeah, yeah. For people so who are not I, comics who want to, you know, they, I oh my, oh my god, I'm going to have to MC. I want to start with something funny. Oh, thank you, Frank. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a, but I had kind of the same start, Brian. You know, I had only done it. Uh, I got on an open mic. Got hired to MC off the open mic. Starts and stops. Got into the Jay Leno comedy contest. Finally, for a seven year hiatus and got to the finals of that um was shocked I, I mean i didn't win it didn't get to the finals but I, I was published in the newspaper you know and one of the top of the things that i did and i had horrible jokes i mean i look back i know uh-huh. well, the joke they published in the newspaper is so bad it was something about um uh i used to be a government worker i know that's an oxymoron that's the joke and i i was <laughs> proud of that man yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know. The, some of the things we were proud of. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. But, you oh, know, Lord. speaking of missing gigs, I had sort of a uh, California experience. The, the group said, group called me. It was a corporate thing. And they said, uh, I live in Los Angeles. And it was up in San Francisco area. And they said, um, hey, we've got to change the time for your keynote. You know, it's, it's going to be 8, 10 a.m. instead of 8. I said, fine. They neglected to say it would be on a different day. And so... I'm sitting in my living room at about one o'clock on that or one o'clock on the day before two days before. And I was planning to go up and I pick up the brochure, you know, and I look at, I just was flipping through as I'm kind of thinking I should start packing. And it has me on for like the next morning. And what the hell? (laughs) I look back through the emails. No, it was a different time. No, it's a different day. So I jumped on in my car. Luckily I could drive it. And I made it that night up there. And just only because you you saw it. 
I write only because I happen to be putting together a few things. And I look, flip through the, to see, you know, because they usually got the description wrong or what am I going to speak on today? Oh, you know, uh, birds or something. And uh, I flipped through and saw the, the times and the date and um, <laughs> walked, got to the reception in time that night. And I think I walked up to her and, oh, good to see you. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, next time you got to, if it's a different day, you got to like highlight that. You yeah, know? you should mention that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I uh, came close once to missing. I was in La Jolla. Oh, in, yeah. Getting ready for bed early, thinking I'm forgetting something. <laughs> and this is pre cell phone. And I had the phone turned off in the landline. And I don't know, <gasps> I guess before I went to bed, I thought I better pick up the messages. I pick up the messages, and there's six messages. <laughs> and and fortunately, the gigs in downtown San Diego is not that far. But I got to be in a tux, and I got I'm got to be down there like twenty minutes from the moment I picked up my messages. So I pick up the messages, and it's the same woman, the Booker, and each message gets more and more frantic. Oh, God! And finally, I called her. And I go, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm on. I'm on my way. And I made it. Made it in time. And but yeah, you made it in time, even though she called six times. Like, wow. wow. Yep. Wow. And in my tux. Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> and you were funny, yeah. And I was funny, yeah. I, uh, yeah, that's just, although I, I double. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry, I was going to say I double booked once and was like, oh, shoot. One was a lunch, one was a dinner, and it turns out they were both in San Diego. Yeah. I couldn't believe my good fortune. I thought, oh, I'm in so much trouble. It was two different agencies. I thought I'm going to have to, and it was something, you know, I wasn't sure which one that came in first. And, ah, and I, all of a sudden I realized, wait, wait. These are both the same day. They're, they're two <laughs> hours apart. They're 50 miles away from each other. Yes. <laughs> yes. It doesn't work out that often. No. Uh-uh. It doesn't. Oh. More, more likely, it's like you, you have a month where you only have like one gig booked and somebody offers you something and it's on that same day. On that of day. Then you can't. Well, I just okay. had, you know, all the shuffle with all the coronavirus and stuff. I just had a group shuffle from 1st of June to in-person on June 30th and I had just the group that was on June 30th just last week had shuffled the next year. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. I just, you know, escaped that one. So yeah, I got one May 4 live in Salt Lake city. And then, and and, then I talked to another client. Well, we're thinking about May 4. Uh And I said, well, you know, I've got a a dinner thing in Salt Lake city. So uh, they go, no, ours is virtual. Four hours before in virtual. All right, yes. you're there, do it. Yeah, virtually yeah. there. <laughs> you know that that is the thing about the Zoom. I mean, you could do a gig in San Francisco in the morning and in in Nigeria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I MC yeah. two multi day MC two multi day events in November, three time zones, including mine, and I yeah. did it at the same time. I did. I just had the two different things, two computers. Flip that one off, go back MC. I did it, and I made the money the whole nice. week. And I could never have been in no. uh, was, uh, like North Carolina, you know, and, uh, Texas, or something. Right. I, I I haven't checked with anyone on this, but I'm just assuming, and I was assuming that this has been very fortunate for me, but in the same way, fortunate for both of you. For most comedians, if most of their work is club work, the pandemic has pretty much meant no work. But yeah. if you do corporate stuff, it's like you know. Everything became virtual. There are conferences. Well, they still have conferences. I've been, I've performed virtually. I've given science communication talks virtually. I've hosted an award show. I've, I've just interviewed scientists as part of an event or moderated a panel. These are the things that I already do. And I was 
So these things could all continue, even if comedy clubs didn't. Yes. My events kind of continued. And I'm sure that, so I think we're kind of lucky. We probably have worked a little more this past year than a lot oh, of our yeah. peers. Yeah. Well, I, and I if, if I had to do all over again, um, in February of last year, when I was in Cambodia, finishing up a cruise. Yes. Uh, as the world knows. <laughs> as the world knows. You brought uh, that virus over. <laughs> yeah, brought it back with me. A uh, guy called me up and he goes, I'm going to make sure you never work comedy clubs again. Can I get that in writing? Yeah. Um, no, but if, I, if I'd known then what I know now, I would have stayed in the hotel until Holland America finally decided to ship me home. And I just would have Zoomed him and I wouldn't have gotten in trouble. I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the other thing is I have, I have a medical evac policy. MedJet Assist. If I get sick in some foreign country, they will fly me home in a medically equipped jet. They just call my hospital. You got a bed? Yes, he's on his way. So if I had gotten COVID, I would have been far better off. I would have gotten a private flight home. Uh, Frank, can't you fake a heart attack or something? Something. (laughs) Is that what is that? Is that just something you? uh, Is that a service that you subscribe that billionaires subscribe to? Yeah. That uh, when anything threatening their lives, they automatically get whisked away to a safe house. Two hundred seventy-nine dollars a year. And then I also had a medical policy because, you know, the ship charges an exorbitant amount if you get sick. And then who knows what the land-based hospital is going to charge. So I had an international health insurance policy, $500 deductible, plus a med jet assist. So I figured, because, you know, what you know what happened was. Well, you only, did so much. Yeah. yeah, I did 10 years on the ships and mostly with older people. And I had known people who had difficulty getting. There was a comic in the, in the Caribbean who got sick or got injured and. His wife's trying to raise money, you know, go fund me to fly him home. And he died in the Caribbean because the oh wow the healthcare wasn't, you know, up wow. to snuff. So, yeah, so wow. I thought, okay. You know, when, uh, so when the, when it first hit, when my first gig, when I did my first virtual gig, so I've set up a studio. I was doing this pre-COVID. I'm a video geek. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I was setting up a studio here. So this is an actual camera and this mic is hanging from the ceiling, but there's lights and so when I did my first virtual gig, though, I remember coming in here. I was wearing shorts and slippers and a dress shirt. What yeah. I'm call what I would call vir- uh, business virtual instead yeah. of virtual yeah. <laughs> is like you know you only have to look good here. Sometimes I've been cutting my own hair, so I might have like a quarantine um, mullet, but it doesn't matter because you don't get to see the back of my head. You right. only get to see the front and side. So it doesn't matter what's there. It doesn't matter what's just outside the frame of the video. And it, it doesn't matter what I have on below here. Um, but the fact that I did this gig, I just turned this stuff on and I did some stuff and then I went away and then I sent him an invoice for a decent amount of money. I was like, you know, I like traveling, but I got to say, that was a pretty easy way to make money. <laughs> uh, I, I hear you. Yeah, I've yeah. got a whole set, studio set up, too, and I'm not using it now, but uh, it's it's great. The, the downside, do don't more you think? Yeah. The downside what? is you turn the cam- the video, the computer off, and you're not surrounded by people. You're not oh, yeah. People. I mean, not, I do like, miss. I miss that. Getting to see places, and then it's intensely social, and I'm kind of a homebody when I come home. But when I'm on the road, it's intensely social mm-hmm. and fun. I like yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I miss that. I've had great experiences because for one thing, one thing that's become a big part of my career is going to these science meetings. And one of the other things I've done is for meetings I or a, or a university, I'll come there and I'll interview your scientists. Um, there's a meeting I go to every summer in Germany 
Yes, tell us. It's called the Lind. Yeah, so. It's called the what? It's called the Lindau. Lindau, Germany is this quaint little medieval town. It's a touristy place. It's a little island. It's a beautiful little place. And the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting for about 70 years, they've been bringing in groups of Nobel Laureates, which could be like 30 Nobel Laureates. And then hundreds, five or 700 young scientists from 80 or 100 countries, literally. And they're there for a week to be mentored by and learn from. They have lunches, everything. The laureates are there for them. They're at every table is one laureate and a bunch of young scientists. And they, and I was hired to perform in a meeting. And then for fun, I was running around, you know, those things where I made this gig happen. They hired me to come in and perform and they paid my flight and they paid the hotel for a couple of days. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Can I pay a little extra and stay a couple of extra days? And they let me, but I had to pay for like two days of the hotel. And then when I was done with my gig, I ran around with my video camera and I grabbed a bunch of interviews and I was streaming some right onto my Facebook page live. And I impressed one of them with what I was doing there. And starting the next year, my gig has been, I go there to interview scientists right on from the meeting, right onto their Facebook page. And then oh, I shoot fun. some laureates. I might shoot them and edit them later. And then I might appear on moderate or appear on a panel or something else. But my main gig is to do these live videos and edited ones when I get home. Nice. And it was all, I know self, it's like I turned that gig into more. And now I go back every year. It's one of the things I couldn't do if I was at the museum because I, I spend a week there, but since my flight is paid for, I, I tend to spend two weeks in yeah. Europe, like spend yeah. a little extra time while I'm there. And uh, it's just been a blast. So interviewing science, like that part of it, I've done some virtual ones, but there's nothing like going like that meeting is so much fun for me. Hundreds of amazing young scientists that in all these in a hundred countries went through a process to be selected yeah. to be one of the only 700 or 500 worldwide it's pretty How fun that sounds Very great fun. so you go going back this year hopefully yes so last year was virtual and they just announced that this year is going to be a mix of live and virtual like not as big in person and i haven't talked to them yet oh. but hopefully we'll see oh, good luck nice knit this summer cool. yeah it's really fun somebody once said like a friend of mine on facebook once said this is the my favorite thing of yours that you do every year it's kind of cool. <laughs> it's like, yeah, me too. How'd you spend your summer vacation? Well, do you know the term Nobel laureate? <laughs> <laughs> nice, um, nice. Yeah. Brian, and I like that. Like I, sometimes the, the meetings are set up, the laureate interviews are set up and I haven't time to research them, but sometimes they go, Hey, so-and-so just became available. Do you want to interview them? And I don't know a thing about them. Never heard of them. And I sit down and I interview them. Now, who have you interviewed? Who are the big ones? Anyone, oh, anyone? I mean, I don't know if you know some of these, except one guy that I've been on panels with and interviewed, so I've, I know him, Stephen Chu. He won a Nobel Prize in physics. And then under President Obama, he was Secretary of Energy of the United oh. States of America for yeah, four years. A job taken by Rick Perry, the moron governor yeah, of there's that Texas. Versus a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Physicist, yeah. Who knows a little bit about energy. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. He's a physicist. Um, and then there's just some others that I've met at another event as well that are 
Um, Donna Strickland, a couple years ago, had just won the Nobel Prize in physics and was the first woman to do so maybe since Mary Curie or something like it had been a long time. Women had won in medicine and physiology and some in chemistry, but it had Francis, been a long time since. Francis, uh, yeah. Arnold. Francis Arnold yes. just won. Why you, yeah. Why do you know that in chemistry, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, because uh, I have a, um, my, my girlfriend is, works at Caltech and we oh. go, to, I live down the street from Caltech and we go is there she from and Cal- we, she works she Cal- at Caltech. Uh, Francis okay. Arnold is Caltech. And uh, so we have a thing with the Caltech uh, uh, club there. And we go have lunch or whatever, and we see Francis Arnold. And you sit next to these Nobel, yeah. and you wouldn't even know these people. He's so nice. You wouldn't even know these people. Oh, I know. Oh, they're really sitting nice. Next to and, some, you know. and, you know, maybe this is self-selecting because the Nobel laureates that choose to attend this meeting and keep coming back every year, they're doing it for the young ones. Because that meeting, sometimes you go to meetings and the elder scientists or whatever or whatever the elder whatever at any kind of meeting are kind of exclusive and you probably don't get to be around that's not what this meeting is you come to this meeting for the for them for the the young scientists so they're amazing they're gracious they have all the time in the world i saw stephen chu once on the last day a journalist wanted we were at picnic tables on the last day on this amazing other little island and a journalist wanted some of his time and he like, he had no time from them, but then he turns and he had all the patience and time and no sense of anything for the young scientists because nice. he didn't care. He didn't care to be interviewed. I don't need any press, you know, right. that kind of like, right. it's like, I, I don't, I'm not here for you. I'm here for them. And it was, he had all the time in the world for them and get away. Brian, we got to talk offline. My last job before this was, uh, I worked in, I was not a, I'm not a scientist, but I worked in the optics industry, optical cool. side of America. Yeah. So I once did a gig for the OSA in Washington, D.C. at their office yeah. a million. Before I was the science comedian, I did a oh, gig for the OSA. Oh, funny. What, what year? I wonder what year, because I, I left there 25 years ago. But I did a gig for them rec- uh, a couple of years ago just for their holiday party staff. That's nice. I don't but, know. Um, I have, it was a long time ago, OSA, and I have yeah. no ability to place things in time. <laughs> that, it was sometime between watching, 1987 and now. I hired... Um, <laughs> When I started doing stand-up in comedy clubs, I hired the Capitol Steps to do a science meeting. It was right there in the Hubble really? Trouble. And they had a song they made up called the Hubble Trouble. The Capitol Steps are the funny, you know, singing yep. troupe. And I remember, this is 25 years ago, I handed them a check at the end of the night, something like $10,000. And I thought, oh, so much money. And I realized that the blood bubble went off. There's money not outside of comedy clubs. And that's what made me think. Oh. And what if you didn't have to split it with anyone? Right. And I was happy. I would have been happy to split it with the other five people, too. I thought I remember the comedy club. You know, when that thought that sort of thought really hit me once was back in the day when he first hit it big. I saw Eddie Murphy perform at the summit in Houston, Texas, where I had seen Queen and Sticks and ELO and and whoever else, Aerosmith. And but but when I saw Eddie Murphy, it was the same sellout crowd. And it was just one guy and a microphone. It's like, there's no roadies to pay to speak. Up. You know what I mean? Nobody yeah. has to unload all the equipment. There's not four other people in the band with you. And I was like, wow. And the tickets were at the same price or more. Wow. Fun, fun realization. Yeah. And that reminds me, I was in the Midwest somewhere and Tom Sobel, Booker, booked an improv troupe called Midwest Tool and Tool and Die or something. And there were eight or nine of them traveling in a van. They were they were middling or something. 
And the club owner says to me, or the one nighter owner says to me, Hey, you're following those guys. I go, No, the hell I am. Not. <laughs> I'm not following eight guys doing improv. And I said to them afterwards, You know, the middle money here is like 250 That's like 30 bucks a piece. You need to cut some of this, uh, you know, this dead weight loose. Uh, oh. yeah, yeah. You know what? Being the only entertainer, I did a Christmas party once and I went down for the sound check and they said, You're using the band's mic. And I said, Okay. And they had some little technical whatever, this and that. And I just said, uh, it was a really nice, it was in San Diego, and it was a really nice top of the rooftop type of thing, uh, room. And I said, well, I said, you know, while you guys get it squared away, I'll just go up to my room and uh, just, can you just call me when you get done? We're ready for me. And the band members turned to each other and were like, he gets a room here? <laughs> I felt horrible. I mean, I felt like, oh, my God, yeah, I'm thinking, oh, Oh, you know, it's not a great room. <laughs> I'm not going to open the mini bar. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, didn't have to split it. And I wasn't driving my butt back to, uh, you know, my house that night. So Greenville, North Carolina, you're staying in the band house. <laughs> the, the attic was the name of the club in Greenville, the attic. And he goes, you're staying in the band house. And I go, no, the hell I am not. <laughs> I, I don't know. I want to stay where the band, you know, I, I'll get myself a motel. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Ryan, this stories. is so fun to talk to you and to meet you. And, and Nice uh, to meet you. Great stories and great love to science. What can Thanks. we plug for you? Sci- your website? Your, well, you know, your I'm next experience. Science, you- science comedian is my handle most places. And most places means um, YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and sciencecomedian.com. I'm easy to reach. There's an email form at sciencecomedian.com or you can reach me on any of those. So in particular, though, I'm ramping up video stuff. Uh, so my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash sciencecomedian, subscribe, hit the little bell thing so you get notifications because I'm going to be doing some live stuff and some edited, not live stuff. Um and bringing back a sort of an interview-based sort of show, nice. as well as some other stuff. So that's the main thing. Just, just that uh, science comedian at all places, most places. Nice. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having appreciate me. Appreciate you being on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Do, let's, are we going to do another like? You know, after we're all over 100, or maybe we should try 75 first. Uh, uh, Brian, this started out as over 40 and effing funny, and it took us 10 years. Every year, Frank would call me and go, do you have time for it now? I'm like, I don't, I don't. Last spring, he calls, do you have time now? I have a feeling that by now, a lot of, yeah, I think by now, a lot of your, yeah, by the time you started doing it, it's probably a lot of like past 60 or just pushing it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, Um, yeah, but we're still, I'm still standing. Yeah, I better than I ever was in some ways. In some ways, I'm still here. Yeah, (laughs) good deal, man. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. Uh, My pleasure, Brian. Good to see you. Good to see you, Frank. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Bye. Thanks for listening to Over 50 and F and Funny with comedians Jan McGinnis and Frank King. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends. If you did not enjoy the podcast, We hope you have no friends.